Hi, I'm Rebecca, and I'm a Pearl slash Moody. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a Lexi slash Izzy. I'm Teresa, and I'm just plain Moody, and together we're Big Little Podcast, here to talk about episode five, duo of Little Fires Everywhere. Rebecca, you want to fill us in on what happened in this episode? Sure. So we open this episode in Paris. The year is 1976, and we are at a funky disco. Young Elena is wearing a miniskirt and is being sexually free with a mop-haired hottie. But the next morning, the regular Elena we know and fear jumps out when her boyfriend suggests that they stay in Paris instead of moving back to Shaker, which was their plan. We cut then to the fiery opening credits and can only assume this relationship goes up in similar flames. Back in the present, a dowdy Elena discusses the way the press has been handling the ongoing baby issue. When Bill wonders how BB is affording her lawyer, Izzy shows them a spread in the New York Times featuring Mia's recently sold photo and confesses in the process to being Mia's apprentice. Elena immediately forbids Izzy from going over there again. Izzy looks rightfully annoyed. At school, Pearl reads Lexi a positive pregnancy test in the bathroom. Lexi then goes on to have a post-McDonald's conversation with Brian, and they get into initially the Mirabelle uh, Mayling custody issue, and then they start talking about motherhood, and Lexi kind of floats the idea of her being pregnant and them wanting kids, and Brian informs her that he'd basically be a walking cliche if she got pregnant and encourages her to get on the pill. A little too late for that. Izzy skips school to show Mia the New York Times spread and confesses to snooping through Mia's stuff. Mia kicks her out and jumps on the phone immediately with her agent, who assures her that Pearl and herself are safe. Bibi arrives for a scheduled visitation with Mei Ling, much to Linda McCullough's rage. She, Linda spots Mia witnessing the encounter and runs over to confront her, but Mia drives off. Elena, meanwhile, is using micro, microfilm and her journalism to snoop out Pauline Hawthorne's connection to Mia when Linda arrives and asks Elena how long she's known about Mia's connection to Bibi. That night, Elena comes unglued with Bill, accusing Mia of trying to steal her daughter and helping BB steal Mailing. Bill isn't buying this, but Elena is persistent that Mia is a liar and a con artist and storms off to New York in the middle of the night to prove it. In New York, Elena bribes a bursar with Magnolia cupcakes to get her hands on Pauline Hawthorne's student rosters and unearths Mia's address. She gets in a cab to continue her sleuthing, but takes a detour when she remembers her ex-flame works at the Times. After stopping to glam herself up, Elena meets with the ex-flame, whose name is Jamie, and asks him to do some digging into Elena, into Mia. She offers drinks as compensation, but Jamie ups the ante to dinner. At said dinner, Jamie reveals Mia had a brother, Warren, who died when he was 17. News that uh, both seem to deem celebratory enough to occasion a whole bottle of champagne. They get drunk and start reminiscing, and it's clear Jamie is living the exciting life Elena could have had but chose not to. Dinner turns to a nightcap, Elena is getting loose, and she confesses that she reached out to Jamie because she was curious about his life and harbors some regrets about her own life. She invites him back to her hotel, and he accuses her of being a narcissist and a sad person living a sad life. Back in Ohio, Lexi arrives at the abortion clinic alone, but eventually Pearl turns up to drive her home after. When Lexi is summoned for her appointment, the the name the nurse delivers is Pearl Warren. Pearl is rightfully horrified. Lexi gives her an apologetic look, and on she goes. Post-op, Lexi apologizes to Pearl, saying she only used her name because if her name got out, it would actually mean something. Lexi then begs Pearl to take her to the Warrens' house instead of her own, which Pearl very kindly obliges, watching in disgust as Mia tenderly embraces Lexi. After Lexi falls asleep, Pearl confesses to Mia that she boned Trip because she felt like that was the guy to lose your virginity to, which is kind of fair. Mia explains that sex is really simple, and Pearl uses the opportunity to ask Mia about her dad. Mia lists his nice qualities before explaining he just didn't want to be a parent. They're interrupted with a call from Trip who meets Pearl on a nearby playground to apologize for taking her virginity in such a rude way. Tripp confesses, confesses that Pearl is different from the many, many Jennifers he's banged, and she makes him nervous because she reads the bell jar for fun and is, like, really, really pretty. Pearl is thrilled. They hold hands. It all seems peachy. Back in New York, Elena rests from her rejection, gets up in the middle of night, and drives to Pennsylvania. In a little episode one callback, she sleeps in her car until a cop knocks on her window. But no, it's not because she's doing anything wrong. It's because she's parked in a bad neighborhood. The neighborhood happens to be the neighborhood of Mia's parents. And the episode ends with Elena meeting Mia's parents and learning that they have never met their granddaughter because, wait for it, the baby Mia was carrying in the photograph was not hers. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we're going to jump straight to the end of the episode for the... uh, I don't know. The past couple of episodes to me have felt a little like they're just filling time. Um, And so I thought this was the most... You know, this is obviously the most compelling part of this um, of this episode. It's the thing that makes you want to watch next week. Um, so Pearl isn't Mia's child. 
What does that even mean? Uh, Carolyn, can you take a guess? Because I, I, we already Rebecca know. <laughs> and I are both. Well, but we don't know, right? Because this is not exactly no. what it is in the book. No, correct. But I do, yeah. I do think so, Carolyn should take this because we know a lot more. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, up until that moment, I had been, I had been suspecting that maybe Pearl was the product of rape to for Mia. Um, and now, uh, with this piece of knowledge, I actually really have no clue. Um, <laughs> I actually have no concept of. Uh, what I am suspecting. I am just along for the ride here and not even trying to like come up with theories. Although I did question. So at the end, as they uh, are, you know, doing this like montage at the end and they're playing that banging cover of the Alanis Morissette song. Um, mm-hmm. They, she's developing an old role of film and the one of the photos that we actually see her develop is a woman and is that supposed to be a younger version of her or is that just another person that that did kind of get me to start wondering who's this woman no yeah i mean i had the same question about the woman i think i know who the woman is i'm just confused as to how she figures into this context because um you know we see her developing that role of film right after Pearl has sort of asked. Right. And the agent told her that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe she should start opening up to Pearl and tell her the truth. So I Mm -hmm. was, that is something I was wildly assuming was that this role of film held, held the truth. So then we saw this woman, but I was not ruling out that this was a younger, younger her a younger Mia because I mean they cast an actress to play the young Reese Witherspoon in the Paris flash flashback and I thought that casting was horrible <laughs> well right but we but we see Mia pregnant in the photo and it looks and like her right Carrie Washington yeah so confusing no I I mean I think the woman in that photo is Pauline Hawthorne mm-hmm. that's what I was suspecting um, and if we think back to that first or second episode where you get that shot of Mia lying on the subway with a woman stroking her hair, right. I'm quite sure that's all right. supposed to also supposed to be Pauline Hawthorne. So I think that the fact that they're kind of keeping Pauline on the periphery and she is this kind of enigmatic, you know, mysterious figure is very much intentional. And what her actual role is has yet to be revealed, other than that she was Mia's art teacher in high school. Uh, yeah, I think high school. I think it's college. college. Oh, I college. Think college. Okay, sorry. But, but. Um, but yeah, like this is deviating a lot from the book in a way that feels like it's going to make it a lot more confusing and even harder to like Mia. Yeah, man, she's just getting more and more unlikable as these episodes go. And I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop and like to feel this empathy with her. No, she's just so even when she's saying stuff like the whole conversation she has with Pearl about how Lexi's going to disappoint her and use her and all this stuff. And then when she tells off Mm -hmm. Lexi, I'm like, this is not coming off in the way that the writing wants it to be. Like, I don't I I just feel like so like she's so angry. I don't know. Yeah. The way she treated Lexi post the abortion. I was like, yeah, I know Lexi's a stupid kid that has made some bad decisions. But do you really think like screaming at a girl who's just had an abortion at 16 years old about her privilege is the right time? Like, no. Oh, my gosh. I was needing to address that moment because, to me, that ruined Mia as ever being a character that I can have sympathy for or or with. And because she had an opportunity to kind of rise, rise above here and and show a different side. And instead, we just got that sour face and that stink attitude and she just lashed out at a very scared kid who was feeling very alone in the world and yes Lexi was not some of Lexi's choices were not good here and she did definitely like use Pearl but her behavior towards a child was reprehensible yeah I mean that was basically the next thing on my list to talk about because one I think the whole abortion issue issue in this is really interesting because again nothing can be about women without being about motherhood so now we have a girl who has you know repeatedly said like 
BB is in a fit mother because she abandoned her child and now she's having an abortion, which, you know, I struggle to put th this into the right words because I in no way think there's anything wrong with her having an abortion. But, you know, obviously we're supposed to be juxtaposing her decision to make a choice that's right for her to this, um, to the story about BB and Mei Ling. And she seems... And she's obviously very distraught about this choice. It doesn't seem like the clear cut choice for her the way it would be for a lot of people at her age who are just like, no, I've got a future ahead of me. This is what I have to do. She seems to think there's another alternative for her. And, and she's much more upset about it. And that's the whole conversation with Brian when Brian is immediately like, we can't have a kid mm -hmm. now. Like, do you know how that is going to look for someone like me? And she doesn't even factor that in. And I think that that is, you know, a, a lot of young women in that position maybe that first like shock and horror fades away with that second thought, which is, okay, we could do this. Like, you know, I have a supportive family. I, you know, it would be much better than getting an abortion. And then having to actually understand it from Brian's side and Brian, you know, immediately shutting that down. I don't think Lexi actually really does the work to try and understand why Brian is reacting the way he is, but it's a rejection nonetheless for her. And that's just, you know, then it seems cut and dry. Like she can't do this without the family structure. Then she's a single mother and all the implications with that, like, I, I see why Lexi made the choice she made, and I can see why having an abortion is preferable to giving up a baby in her mind. Like, it's it's more of, like, a, a medical thing than a than an attachment. Right, and I mean, I mean, the reason a lot of women make that choice right. is because if you go through nine months of carrying a baby and then have to give it up, it's a lot different than, yeah. you know going to the doctor for a half hour procedure and you know right a pile of cells being gone um and i did really appreciate the way they handled the abortion scene like i feel like a lot of the times in television it shirks away from that the reality mm -hmm. of how uncomfortable and you know the the when the nurse asks her if she wants to see the baby on the ultrasound like all of those steps like i really glad that they took the time to go through that instead of just cutting away and having her like come out of the appointment after I thought yeah. they were, you know, powerful scenes and well acted by uh, the young actress Jade Pettyjohn, who plays Lexi. I thought she did really nice work. But this isn't the only. So you know, Mia is incredibly, incredibly mean to her. Yes. <laughs> you know, she takes her in at first, and um, and you're like, okay, good going, Mia. This is uh, like, if you're going to be the free spirited mom, you should be the mom whose kids right. can come to her at a point like this, right? And and that's seemingly what happens. But then she takes this as a time to basically tell Lexi that she's a spoiled brat who can't wash her own dishes. Like, fair enough. But, like, now is the time you choose to tell her? And and any of those things could have been said in a much kinder way. You know, like there were, um, there were, you know, she went from zero to a hundred real quick and she could have taken it to a 20, still been honest with. And actually with, had some uh, impact. Lexi. Like Lexi is someone right. that wants to learn and be racially aware. And the only reason she, I think, stumbles so much is because she is in such a white community and doesn't have even the language or the, or the thought process to really be a good ally. And I think Mia had a real opportunity here to actually teach something to Lexi about her privilege and that Lexi would have been open to. But the way she went about it, it's like, uh, why does anyone want to listen to anything Mia well, has to say after this? Beyond that, all Lexi wakes up, you know, in the middle of the night after having had an abortion. She's uncomfortable. She's scared. She's confused. And all she asks of Mia is, do you think I made the right choice? Because she mm -hmm. is so conflicted. And that's what made it even more heartbreaking was she was just reaching out and just trying to have a conversation woman to woman because she just had to make a decision that was not a decision for a child. It is a woman decision. And she was just mm -hmm. reaching out. And Mia just took this opportunity to, A, treat her like a child, B, treat her like she's a spoiled child, and C, show her, you know, tell her off about how she felt she was treated when she worked in their house, which was Mia's choice to work in that house and put herself in that position to begin with, just to, you know, continue to spy you know, It's not like it. Mia's a family friend helping out. Like, Mia was someone that was brought into the family as their employee. So for all of this, like, anger, like, you shouldn't have taken the job then, Mia. Like Right. And this anger was just yeah, so... I don't want to clean up after children, so I don't. Right. Like... <laughs> this was so misplaced on a girl who was just needing to have a conversation she just is 
was so lost and had felt like she had no one to go to. Her mother is literally out of the state right now. You know, she's doesn't she's not mm-hmm. going to talk to any of her siblings. You're not going to go to your father about something like this. She, her other friends, she doesn't want this getting out. She didn't have anyone she felt she could trust. Pearl, she did feel she could trust because there is a level of control play there where she felt like she, you know, that Pearl is trustworthy because Pearl wanted to get into, you know, be part of, be her friend and be in that circle. So like, yes, there was some manipulation there in using Pearl, but it was also, I understand where she was coming from. She was like cornered into this. And in this moment, she needed somebody. And this would have been a moment where Mia could have let her guard down. Mia's lived, as we're learning, a very hard life herself. And this would have been a great moment for her to connect just on another human level, for God's sakes. I want to talk about this idea of Lexi using Pearl because I feel like she's just asking Pearl to be a friend, right? In a lot of these situations. Um, maybe I'm being naive, but... I think you know, it's ignorance. When your friend gets pregnant, oh, when your friend, if your friend got pregnant and asked you to come to the abortion clinic with her so she wasn't alone, would you feel like she was using you? And if she had nowhere else to go and she asked if she could come home with you, would you feel like she was No, but if she you? used no, my name... Yeah, that's the name, ...to borrowing. check in... Mm-hmm. Instead of her own, just because she was afraid that how it would reflect upon her if it got out. Because and the rationale was mm-hmm. not that like I just it was the first name that popped into my head. It was it it matters if my name gets out. Therefore, the implication it doesn't matter if if Pearl's name gets out. And it would that's have where I think played it's, very it's differently so... if she had if one of the first things she said to Pearl is by the way I gave them your name because I didn't want to use my name and I didn't even think to use a fake name. Like if she would have communicated right. it differently. But if I went, if I got a phone call and I went to help a friend and I found out that they had used my name, I would feel a little, I, I would feel jarred by that, especially given the response that Lexi has, you know, to Pearl's reaction to it. And the dynamic of a white woman using a black woman's name as a cover for an abortion. I mean, that's, you know, there is that racial component right. to it that whether or not Lexi knows that or means it that way, like that's how Pearl receives it for better or for worse, because this is the way society unfortunately has been and was in the 90s. There is... I also think... Go ahead. There's also this layer of what actually happens when she walks in. One, she hasn't made an appointment for some reason. And then two, she realizes, oh shit, my mom's friend runs this place. If she sees my name, that's going to be a problem. Which she could have very easily communicated and then said, I'm sorry, I had to think quickly and I didn't think of anyone else. And so, to some degree, I guess what's not adding up to me is the writing. Yes, that's the problem here. Because, right, because in the book, um, it very, she makes it pretty clear that she doesn't want her name to be recognized by the woman who runs the clinic. It's not about it getting out, like, it's about this woman seeing it and telling her mom. Um, So she just needs a name she's not going to recognize and doesn't know, you know, can't think quickly on her feet and doesn't come up with just a fake name. Um, and so I feel like the writing is kind of all over the place with this. They show us the woman heading the clinic. We see Lexi registering this as like, oh, no, danger, Will Robinson. I can't use my name. I got to hide my face. But then she goes to this like, well, no one can know I had an abortion. It's fine if you have one. Like, excuse. And it, it just feels like a little bit all over the place with the writing. Yeah. Especially because um, they do start with that line of dialogue. They they did start off by saying, oh, I saw that my mom's friend worked there. So they could have just left it there, but they right. had to take it to that next place. And it's just like, it's becoming so heavy-handed. And I think it mm-hmm. is great that they're trying to have this conversation. But if you're essentially reducing, like, the black protagonist into a, a angry black woman trope, it is mm-hmm. not, you know, it's not telling us a, a, a real portrayal of of life under these conditions because, you know, people don't behave this way. There are no, I don't know anybody that would ever behave the way Mia behaves in response to a young girl coming to her post-abortion. Like, it was just wild. No, and it's, so it's not just Lexi that she's incredibly horrible to in this episode. She's also really mean to Izzy, who kind of yeah. comes to her when she puts together the fact that 
this photo of Mia is in the New York Times now because it's been sold to a fancy hotel. Um, and she comes to her and is like, this is you, isn't it? And she's like, no, it's not me. And it's like, of course it's you. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, well, I just thought because you were sending that package out to Sotheby's and you have a Pauline Hawthorne book. And she Mia freaks acts out. like she was... Yeah, she acts like she was going through her bedside table or something and, like, rooting through her vibrators. Like, it was a giant package in the middle of the room where you have this girl work with you every day. Like, she did not snoop, but you're slamming a door in her face and you were, like, the only lifeline this kid has right now. You are a monster. And she knows that, too. She knows how dire Izzy's situation is and how vulnerable Izzy is. And she's just, like, deuces, not interested in dealing with this small child anymore. It's like, what? Where are you coming from? <laughs> oh, God. She's so mean. It to sucks. All like, it just, it, it makes me so upset in the writing. And, like, I do think there is some blame to be, you know, given to Kerry Washington. But I also think Kerry Washington is just given, like, terrible dialogue compared to at least Elena, like, in this episode. Like, I, yeah. I understood more mm-hmm. of Elena. She was more compelling. And her writing is better. Like, I just, it, I don't know. I don't know. I don't it, know, though. I, I really feel like Kerry Washington is. I mean, her face. is to blame. I know, Carolyn. You think this is one hundred percent? I mean, I'm not saying it's one hundred percent, but I'm saying she is really playing this very monotone to me. Um, like there is no there there is no gray area with her character. How she is doing this, there is black and white only. Um, it, and I'm not even talking. I'm not talking about skin color. I'm just talking about like these like polar. Like she just has yeah. made her a very one note character in and and her facial expressions there is like nothing coming from within her eyes either like it's not like you don't Mm-mm. and i don't know if this is like she's supposed to be this guarded character that is like this enigma but i just don't think so i think there is no layering that she has done other than the text and it's a very bizarre choice to me maybe things will change well, how think- many episodes are left by the way Four. Oh my god, uh, there's apparently three. like nine, eight of these. Okay, so maybe something so will more? change. Maybe there's going to be some big turnaround. But right now, as it plays, I agree. I think the Elena character I'm start I have seen like layers with, and all of the kids are doing such a great job of really like inhabiting and living in these, you know, very soulful beings. And that's my problem with Mia, is like this is just somebody doing a cranky face and delivering lines and there is no one there no one so i think part of the problem here is that the elena character is more or less as she was in the book and so you have this entire text and history to draw from whereas the mia character has really taken a turn from who she is in the book which means it's left to screenwriters and not a novelist who probably spent years writing this book right and then had editors help her and readers who read it and were like oh I don't really like this part what about this and you know that the book went through a process and the characters went through a process that I don't think the Mia character benefits from here because the writers have decided to go off on their own little tangent which brings us to the article that Rebecca sent to all of us this morning from the Atlantic that is titled when a tv adaptation does what the book could not and it basically goes on to praise the show for turning Mia and Pearl into characters of color and tells us that Celestine wanted to do this but didn't feel like she was the right person to do it um And so they hired a really diverse um, writing room, apparently a very big writing room to tell the story. You know, it's almost like just they're just sort of patting themselves on the back for having done this without actually giving enough meat to Carrie Washington and her character to really do anything with because she is just angry for the sake of being angry as far as anyone can tell so far she just hates everybody whereas in the book she's very much a neutral observer she's sort of yep. a weird artist she's our just conduit to... she Mia is our way into right. this mm-hmm. world Mia and Pearl but Mia really is like mm-hmm. if there is one protagonist you're gonna pick like it's Mia and all of that is gone, and I feel like she's the antagonist now. And as horrible as Elena can be, it's like she's at least got some sympathetic characteristics. I think the Atlantic piece was fantastic for a couple of reasons, and it—I mm-hmm. don't—I don't agree with what it said, but I think the questions it asked were really spot on. And that was, you know, Celeste Ng's hesitation 
to go there because she didn't feel equipped as an Asian American woman to write about a black woman's experience. And then the show deciding to go there. But, you know, I think that the showrunner is a white woman and they have not. So I guess what I'm trying to say is the Atlantic article asked at the end, like, whose job is it to tell a story? Like, where does the fittingness come to tell a story? Like, do you have to have somebody of that experience to tell it? And I think the great comparison to this that's somewhat topical is, um, I'm going to blank on the name of this, the Oprah's Book Club pick. What the heck was this book called? It was it went through the big controversy because the writer was, uh, originally had kind of come out and said she was Latina, but then later denounced that and identified purely as Caucasian. And the book is about the border struggle. Oh, my gosh. I'll remember it in a minute. Oh, but American Dirt. American Dirt. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. And that became a whole conversation about like what what can an author do in the year 2020? Like, is it appropriate for a white woman to write about a black woman's struggle? And is it appropriate for a television show with a white frontrunner? Just you know, despite the fact that the staff itself is diverse, is that that person's story to tell? And I think it comes down to like fittingness to tell the story. And I don't think in this case they're doing a great job. Yeah, and I I don't think they're doing a great job. And I I think they. Well, one, I think the problem here is like it's almost a boring setup, right? It's like rich white lady versus poor black lady who is her maid. Like that's what they've sort of narrowed this down to. Whereas in the book, the question is like more about the lifestyle you choose. And and Elena just not being able to understand that anyone doesn't want her lifestyle. And Mia is just sort of kind of a you know, objective weirdo who like almost doesn't even register that kind of stuff. And she's just kind of observing the Richardsons from a remove. Um, You don't get the sense that she's there to spy on Pearl in the, in the book. But it makes her much more compelling. Right. And I, but I also think there are so many people out there now telling stories about race in really interesting ways. I mean, Jordan Peele is the person who comes to mind immediately. Like, you know, why even bother doing this story? I would have killed for a Jordan Peele adaptation of this. To be honest, (laughs) I actually feel Mm -hmm. like Jordan Peele would have really nailed this uh, if he was handed this book and turned this into a script. This um, would actually make a really mm-hmm. cool horror adaptation. I was, I like was if you lean say, into it in that way, he, it could be really, really interesting. He really could have like leaned into this and brought out, he would have brought out some of the comedy, but like the dark side. And he probably would have cut it down into a nice uh, film length. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and, and the characters would have all been a lot richer in their development. I just Well, Jordan Peele is the executive producer behind Hunters, which is yes. one of the things I've recommended on this yes. podcast, which is a racial story in that it's about, you know, Jews who not not just Jews, actually, it, there are a few um, Holocaust survivors. And then there's a black woman, and an Asian man, and they're hunting the Nazis who are still alive and living in America with the help of the American government. And um, unless you're me and happen to listen to like weird conspiracy podcasts, you might not know about Operation Paperclip and the fact that this was a real thing. Right. And so he's bringing a story um, that sort of hasn't been told enough to the forefront in a completely new and different way and sort of making the survivors, the protagonists and and not just like active protagonists, right? They're seeking the people who hurt them. And at the same time, he's telling a story that we don't actually tell that much anymore, right? Like there were plenty of World War II movies, but it was often about the soldiers. It was not generally about, you know, the people totally. most devastated totally. by this. Well, here's... and No, finish. And Go ahead, Carolyn. I was going to say, this is the problem with exactly... like. That's exactly what we're just trying to get at the root. There is nothing original here. There is nothing here that exposes anything in a new light or even really can make you think beyond thinking like, wow, Mia's a bitch. Elena's a bitch too. They're just different kinds of bitches. Like it just one bitch is more privileged than the other. The other right. bitch is much saltier than the other. This like, show does not get it. give us anything new. It doesn't approach a story from a new angle or really give us anything that 
makes us think beyond, you know, what should we be thinking about here? And the fact that we even have to like delve into that and that is is kind of disappointing. You know what? I just made a connection here that I cannot believe I haven't made before, but I read a book recently called Such a Fun Age, um, the author of which I unfortunately do not have on the tip of my tongue, but she is a black woman. And it's a, the story of a, calling her nanny would be um, sort of overstating it, but she is the babysitter for, um, she's a young black woman who's a babysitter for a wealthy white family in New York City. And she gets a call kind of in the middle of the night one night to see if she can come pick up their daughter and just take her to the store for a little while because something has happened at home and they need to get the kid out of the house. And while she's at the store, she um, basically is accused of kidnapping the baby and like they stop her and won't let her leave until she calls the father who's at home dealing with like a police situation to come and get the daughter and it turns it goes viral at some point and there's a whole thing and she ends up through this like she's you know she ends up becoming the full-time nanny of this child and who she really, really loves, right? She absolutely adores this kid and it it really breaks her heart to even think about leaving her. She also ends up in a relationship with the white guy who witnessed all of this at the store and took the video. And so like, there's a whole lot of dynamics here and it's being told in such a more interesting and nuanced way. Sounds great. Mm. Yeah, it's really great. It's really short. What'd you say? Kylie Reed is the author. Yes, Yes, thank you for looking that up. Um, I really liked it. It sort of explores a lot of the same themes. And there are parts where, you know, the um, the white woman whose kids these are, she really, really wants to be friends with her. And you get like sort of a more nuanced view of why. Mm. And um, but it also comes down to them eventually trying to use her in a lot of messed up ways. And so... It explores all these themes more interestingly. And I feel like, you know, if Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon keep teaming up, they're in- inevitably going to buy this book and make <laughs> it into like the better version of this. But um, but yeah, like it's just they've added this layer without thinking it through enough and not really doing anything but, you know, being like, oh, they dislike each other even more because they're different races and that's all they've done. I mean, the bottom line for me with this show is, is it watchable? Yes. Does it, like, Mm -hmm. am I enjoying, like I said, am I on this ride and like want to know what happens? Yeah. And I'm invested in a lot of the characters, except for Mia. (laughs) And, um, Mm -hmm. but it, it just, like, it to me does not have that same kind of uh, impact on on any level. Like, am I gonna a year from now like fondly look back on watching this show? Well, also I'll probably always associate it with quarantine time. So, <laughs> but I mean, it does not. I don't see this as a show that I'll be like, oh wow, that was a really good show. I'd go back and like revisit that. Like I can I see feel- myself going back and rewatching Big Little Lies. And like the season sp- one, I feel yeah. like little fires oh. everywhere is the way I feel about season two of Big Little Lies. I'm for like, sure, was it, for sure. Was Did- it entertaining? Sure. Was I invested in characters? Sure. Would I rewatch it? Mm, probably not. Season one of Big Little Lies, though, watched it twice, would watch it a third time. Yeah, agreed, agreed, a hundred percent. And I, I think that you know, it's serving the purpose of being something interesting to watch, for sure. But I just think that it misses being that kind of show that really captivates and uh, and and has a lot has a lot to say and offer. And I, I think it's it's hard because a lot of what people are saying about it is kind of like, you know, what what is it doing and what did it try to do? And that's that, that's not great. That's that shows that there was like a mark missed here. Yeah, I I want to sum up this part of our conversation with a tweet I sent to you guys last week um, from at Museum Mammy. If I'm going by the Twitter photo here, she looks to be a black woman. And she wants to know, why does Little Fires Everywhere have me liking the racist characters more than the black ones? (laughs) This is chaotic. And 100%. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, we just can end the podcast now. That literally sums it up. Like, we're good. Pack up. That summarizes it in 20 words. Amazing. 
Uh-huh. And it seems like it's only going to get worse because where they're taking Mia's character seems like it's going to be even worse than it was in the book. And I just don't even know what to do about that. Um, yeah. But let's move on to lighter fare and talk about Elena's old boyfriend Ugh. because I guess we have to. Um, don't we? Ugh. First of all, 1997 Jamie has incredible hair. Mm-hmm. I like, love 1997 Jamie. I would. Oh my god! I would date him in a hot second. Um, <laughs> would you take him back to your fancy hotel that they name dropped the Veritech? Veritech. Yeah. They wouldn't I, stop uh, saying... Varick, I think. Veritech is a catcher. Yeah. Oh, Jason um, Veritech, see? is apparently mm-hmm. a hotel. Yes. Well, um, they wouldn't stop naming dropping the hotel. I'm like, is this product placement or are they just like, this is bad writing? They named the hotel like 80 times. It was driving me crazy. I don't think it's a real hotel. I've I don't either. I was like, it's I not like it's a St. It Regis or something. It's like, okay, that's iconic in this period of time particularly. It was just like this random hotel that looked like a, I don't know, a nomad. It was What was weird. it supposed to be called? The Vera Lick? Vera... Verrick. Verrick. The the yeah. Are we missing something? Not that no, any boutique I have hotels. never heard of that. Uh, there, no. Yeah, um, that was odd. But regardless, I would, I would have, uh, you know, totally continued to have a night of hard drinking and fun with him. Um, and I'm actually impressed well, with the character of Elena that she didn't. Although, not, I mean. No, she tried she, she to. She totally tried. She, she got shut down. down. Uh, I think she knew. I, I think, like, she, she kind of knew no. that her answers were going to, like, end that. Uh, although she did oh, go no. running back uh-uh. and say that I did want to see you. So, fair. But I felt like yeah. her heart was not 100% there to, like, oh, seal no, that deal. Oh, it was there. She was going to Well, no, I mean, she was drunk as hell. She had more than her four ounces of wine, and we know what happens when she does that. So, um, no way. She was totally going to bang Jamie. Pacey has done nothing wrong to her and puts up with her scheduled sex, and she was going to go bang Jamie. On, like, a Thursday. I was shocked. Yeah. I I I thought at least, like, I was like, I wonder how it would be past her to, like, have an affair, but, like, not on her, like, designated days. Like, you can't do that. It's ruined the kink for me now. Oh, my God. Um, but then, so, can we also just talk about the fact that she, when she apologizes, she's like, um, well, basically, she just talks about their breakup, and he's like, that's what you want to talk about, not yeah. what you did to me, yeah. and storms away. And we have no idea what that is, and it's not in the book, so. Um, you got to assume what? that she phoned him for info previously. That's what I thought, that, like, they'd done this before. Well, because he references that. He does say yeah. it wouldn't be the first time. Right. And she was like, what? Yeah. No, I think that they've definitely done this dance before. But it maybe was like a while ago. And the fact that she was like talking about all the kids, like that he knew the kids already. Like she wasn't Mm -hmm. saying my children, blah, 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 blah. She was like, Lexi is the second in her class. Like she was talking to him like he had some sort of familiarity with the kids beforehand. Well, this was not the first time. It's probably been a a long time. Yeah, I think it had been a while, but it wasn't the first time. Yeah, wow. I mean, at least though, it, like Elena has now depth as a character. Like, I'm I'm more intrigued to know more about her. And Mia is just like so flat. It just sucks. I think it really, really is unfair the way that they've chosen to handle both these characters. Because I am becoming more and more compelled by Elena, despite the fact that I really don't want to. So I agree with the Twitter poster. It is chaotic. They, I mean, you know. They're finding ways to add in backstory here because this is not a backstory that really exists in the book. Um, we do get a mention of Jamie and she calls him for information, but she just calls him on the yeah. phone. And there's none of this. We don't know anything about her having abandoned him in Paris or anything like this. Um, and although, I mean, this doesn't set up, in, in some ways this humanizes Mia or Elena, right? Like we see her as a young person having fun and being normal and... And making the decision to just basically cut her career short and go back to Shaker Heights instead of stay in Europe and becoming a foreign correspondent. Whereas when we get backstory on Mia, it's like she's banging random dudes in a car in an alleyway right. while her uh-huh. daughter watches. It's like, so unfair. I mean, what a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> like, I can't. Uh, it's just like they make some very strange choices. And. My first thought of, like, what she did to him had to be, my first thought is, like, Lexi is his daughter. 
Well, that doesn't, I don't know if that adds up with the timing because of, although it depends. We don't know that the last time they saw each other when that was. Um, but also I have to throw in that, like, I had never felt a line ring so real in this show as at that, the, when she goes to the bathroom when they're in Paris in their little apartment and she's like, oh, good thing we're leaving. We're almost out of toilet paper. And oh, I was like, I know. Ah, I was like, do they, are they under quarantine? <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> um, at that moment, all of a sudden Wait. that line had a totally different meaning in these times. I want to go back to this accusation that Lexi might be his daughter because what if they're going to go there and it's Izzy who's his daughter and it's more than oh, just like Izzy gave up, Izzy required her to give up the job she wanted, but Izzy also is the product of this affair that she's ashamed of. See, and I don't know. She and because, and, and so that could make too. it, yeah, that then it makes it even because she. That, that fully did not happen in the book. So this is us just speculating. I mean, this is all speculation, but. I don't know. That, I kind of feel show like all those that I kids see them doing that. are the product of, I feel like Pacey is the dad, but I do think that uh, there, that she has had, she has had relations with Jamie, you know, in the past, there is something he did that she did to him. And I wonder if we're going to ever find that out or if that will just kind of lay there dangling. Uh, we better find it out. There's, I, I don't know how there are three more episodes of this show. I have no idea how that's possible, knowing what we know from the book. Like, so they better give us some more explanation about this bomb they just dropped. Because if they don't, like, it's just, you know, the worst possible writing. I mean, I am I am pretty prepared for things to be left unanswered <laughs> I, we have spent this entire episode talking about this writing not really living up to it so at this point like if i am left with no answers and all sorts of what the fucks i am not at all going to be surprised <laughs> well i actually wonder because we the article mentioned that they had like seven or eight writers in this writer room which is apparently a lot that is a lot a limited yeah. series yeah so like normally there might be three or four and I'm wondering if it's just a product of too many cooks mm -hmm. in the kitchen there is too many people having ideas and saying oh no we shouldn't do that or if we're going to do that then we have to do this mm -hmm. and then we just get this mess I totally agree soup I, I think it feels that way and it also feels like there's a disjointed tone to it sometimes like sometimes it wants to be yeah. like that 90s nostalgia and it wants to lean into like the high school dynamic. And then other times like this episode, it, it just feels like it's flitting between like several different directions and points of view and not necessarily in an effective way because that can be done. Like I honestly, I think there are shows that handle that nicely, but this is just not – it's very heavy-handed too with like yeah. what they're trying to push. Like the scene where – at the end when Elena gets stopped by the cop, my eyes just hit the ceiling. I'm like, really, we're going to do this? We're going to have yeah. a callback to the first episode with Mia having the confrontation yeah. with the police? Like, really? This is just rough. Rough episode for me. I, I just felt like this episode was the filler. You know, mm. I, I think a lot of shows, even when they do these, like, limited eight-episode series, that's a lot. That's, you know, almost eight hours to fill. And when I joke that, yeah. like, Jordan Peele could have done this in one movie, I really think you, you could have. I, I, think that, um, mm -hmm. I think that that's that becomes problematic when you're trying to, like, stretch things out from the source material and you're expanding on characters, creating backstory, creating all these other things. I, I think that that's what we get here is you get stuff that is, you know, like that it's just not as well thought through because it didn't come from a book that had years of work behind yeah, it. Yeah, but there it's are shows from, that like, are a bunch of writers yelling right, at but there are shows that are written that were never based on a book and the right. rooms of writers sat and created stuff that is you know, right is like perfect, perfect writing that uh I, I think some examples of some great writing um were like arrested development. They're like comedy series mm -hmm. the sitcom that writing was so brilliant because something that was referenced in like episode two comes back in like episode you know four of the entire next season and it is so well connected and so well cross-checked and uh and and just kind of how things come together in this world and these characters that is such great writing that just was original you didn't even have the source 
original source material. And then you have a show like this, which is aiming to just complete this one season and they can't even get something from episode five to loop back to episode one without it being an eye roll moment. So I'm not, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think the best, the best thing to sum up how we feel about this show is to tell you that like Carolyn was almost late to this recording because she hadn't even watched the episode yet yeah. because we care. So I have all the fucking time in the world no and I time. like didn't even use it to watch this. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess that shows you where I am with this. Like I said, I mean, when I watch it, I'm engaged. Like, I'm fo- I'm able to, you know, watch the episode without yeah. playing on my phone or something. So I guess that's good. But I'm not, like, rushing to tune in to the new one. I do find they're good with the cliffhangers. Like, every time the episode ends, I'm yes. like, okay, if there was the next one to stream, I probably would stream it, which is why this probably should have mm-hmm. been released in the Netflix style where everything gets dumped at once and you just carry through on your own whim i'm i'm finding like Mm -hmm. week to week i i'm really relying on the like what happened last week despite the fact that we recap these i'm like what happened last week even i don't know it's it's compelling for a maybe 30 minute window after the episode ends and then i kind of forget about it until the next week all right well with that in mind let's let's jump to the best song of this episode um i think i know what everybody's gonna say but I don't know. Well, I don't know. Let's I think see. I know what Carolyn's going to say. No, so okay, I Carolyn, loved... you start. Okay, I loved the violin cover. Oh, fuck oh. you. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> I know. I loved that. Um, and, and I'm I, a sucker I, for, like, an acoustic version of a pop song. Well, I'm a sucker for, like, string covers of music. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, a de- like no vocals, just, like... Yeah, and, um, I mean... Instrumentals. I, I, I loved the use of Alanis Morissette, like, throughout this whole episode. I thought that was a really strong choice to, like, really feature two Alanis Morissette songs um, covered in different ways. I actually, I think that's interesting because I am like, do these people only th- think Alanis Morissette was the, like, only woman making music in the 90s? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> that's I what mean, most sure, think, I think. they could have gone with, like, another another 90s you know, girl, girl rock. But I just thought that kind of the, the, the mood and, and, and the lyrics of these songs worked well for this. Um, and they were just interesting yeah. covers, but specifically that violin one, I want to mm-hmm. download that if it is available. Well, I, so I was going to say the other one, which is uninvited cover by Bell Saint. And I, I think uninvited is probably the best Alanis Morissette song. Um, to begin with and if I feel like so it was a hidden track and you had to wait like 20 minutes past the end of (laughs) of the cd or whatever to get to it and I and because it was a hidden track I don't think it was on the cassette tape at the time I have I have to say I did not know until just this minute that that was an Alanis Morissette cover and I didn't like it (laughs) I was like what was that song at the end it was so weird I like was not into it so I'm gonna go listen to the Alanis Morissette version I'm sure I'll like it a lot better classic it is yeah, so it's like one of those songs you didn't know existed, and then someone was like, oh my god, did you hear the like hidden track at the end? Which, do people do that anymore? Are there still hidden tracks on things? No, I, but I'm I don't into know. That idea. But I did not know that it was a hidden track, and I don't know how I knew that song. Um, I think at some point there was a video for it, because I have this vague recollection of her standing in a room with a bunch of candles mm. and that song playing in the background. I think there was a video for it at some point. Interesting. Uh, oh, yeah. it was also released as a single for the soundtrack of City of Angels. Oh, yeah. That makes total sense. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, because I knew it somehow had a moment beyond. Yeah, I think that's what the video was for. Because Jagged actually. Little Pill uh, came out in 1995. Um, and then I don't know if it was the hidden track on that or if it was. And then it was. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then in 1998, mm-hmm. it was on the soundtrack for um, City of Angels. So what about 90s spotting in general? I feel like this this episode was a little light on the 90s. No, there was All about okay. the McRib. Okay. Yep. Sure. <laughs> um, for me, it was Lexi's platform shoes and her knee highs. I loved that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like just in there in like one shot where they panned out and you saw her whole outfit with her little cardigan sweater and her platform mm-hmm. shoes and knee highs. 
and little skirt, and I was like, was yep, also, that was outfit. those, like, bobble hair scrunchies. Remember those ones that had, like, the plastic balls yeah. on the end? She was wearing yes. those, and that hit me and like, right in the 90s feels. Also, the baby barrettes, that was, yeah. like, mm-hmm. um, that was a moment. So it was in the styling, which was this, for this episode, for those looks, I will say it was, like, right right on point. I criticized all of their, uh, for their formal attire, but their, these, these looks, these school looks were, were really right there for me. That, that outfit too was from the scene where she's just taking the pregnancy mm-hmm. test in the school bathroom where I was like, first of all, who, why are you ta- yeah, wh- there? You're taking a pregnancy test in a school bathroom where anyone could, and then just standing out in the middle of it with it in your hand where anyone could walk The boxes on the counter of the sink. I'm like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. And then, but it also really reminded me again, Rebecca, this is the second time I'm going to reference a show Rebecca has never seen, but it reminded me of all the bathroom scenes from my so-called life (laughs) where just like teenage life was being carried out in the bathroom of the high school well I mean I kind of feel like if this high school was anything like my high school so my high school probably had like 20 girl bathrooms I I I don't know it was a really big school I mean my graduating class had I I don't I don't even remember I want to say like 500 kids in it maybe more (laughs) I had a huge yeah so, I mean, I went to uh, to Newton North, which is a huge uh, public school with a great reputation, but it is a huge public school in a city area. And it was just, I, I swear to you, we probably had 20 girls' bathrooms. We had four floors to the school. The school was huge. We had two swimming pools. Like, <laughs> and I, I just feel like if you were going to take a pregnancy test in a bathroom up somewhere on the fourth floor, nobody would have ever come in. Well, I suppose, so I, my graduating class was about 400 kids. We did not have anywhere near that many bathrooms. There was like one per wing. So there was maybe like, I don't know, probably five bathrooms or something. Um, one outside the cafeteria, you know, one in the main hall, one in the science wing. And there was maybe like one bathroom in the science wing that was literally the middle of nowhere that you could have gotten away with this in. But I I cannot imagine like just go home and pee on that stick. Like you have a bathroom that you share with one other person. It would have been so easy. Yeah, my high school I just looked up has uh, two, about every year 2,090 kids at it. <laughs> uh, my favorite 90s spotting was... Um, Elena and uh, what's his name Jamie talking about the Clinton scandal and him basically him being super woke and accusing liberals of not um, not supporting Paula Jones the way the way they did Anita Hill yes yeah but what I thought was interesting was that you in the book you get a lot of references to the The, Lewinsky scandal yeah there's a ton yeah and we have not heard anything about this I know. I, and I don't know why. Uh, yeah, that is, I mean, I, again, have not read the book. Um, and it, it does feel like that was something that a lot of people were talking about at the time. So I wonder why. Yeah, that's it, an interesting. And if they're going to go back, if they're going to talk about Clinton, why are they bringing up Paula Jones and not Monica Lewinsky? Right. It's interesting. Who this was happening that would have been happening concurrently the paula jones thing was like five years old at that point and especially with these women and their and and all this talk about sex in the show and how sex is used and seen and and all of this you'd think that they would have um drawn a comparison with that with what was going on in the world at that moment yeah it was weird um Rebecca, did you actually tell us your favorite 90s moment yet? I told you, it was a McRib. It was undoubtedly oh, the McDonald's right. conversation about the McRib. I think that's, I mean, I remember that so clearly, like the whole McRib craze. That is like one of my earliest memories. So I definitely lost The ribless rib? Uh-huh. That's made out of what? Oh. Who knows? My mom, to this day, her like McDonald's pick is filet fish And that's another one where I'm like, what are you eating? <laughs> that's a mystery. Yeah. yeah. So I was never willing to branch out at no. McDonald's when I ate it. The last time I ate it was I was really drunk after a Bob Dylan and Elvis Costello mm-hmm. concert and 
then got up in the middle of the night, not because I was drunk, but because McDonald's was wreaking such havoc on my intestines. And I will not go near it. I'm going to confess to our, no matter how drunk I am. our podcast family that every time I have more than like four glasses of wine at my friend's house, there's a McDonald's on the way back. And I <laughs> drunkenly insist on going through it, getting a 10-piece chicken nugget, eating it, and then having no recollection of it the next day. I do this probably <laughs> once every two months. Okay, it's well, terrible. I'm, it's a really, I'm I actually, worse. my New Year's resolution was to stop getting chicken McNuggets at 12.30 when I've had one too many glasses of wine. And uh, Oh, my God. So I'm worse. I, have, I go to a McDonald's sober a lot. So I commute into New York City. That's, that's unforgivable. And, yeah, so I commute into New York City. And if I'm coming home late at night, those golden arches along I-95 – like mm-hmm. beckon me to eat french fries in my car and my car there's like always like little dried up mcdonald's french fries like in between my car seat and that's just like the badge of shame that I yes <laughs> i feel like french fries are different because french fries are french fries i mean the mcdonald's ones are like killing farmers all over the world but i mean if you're eating french fries from mcdonald's is it really that much different from eating french fries from anywhere else but the meat seriously questionable oh yeah like consuming well yeah that meat i don't is... i don't do that but i, I um... actually don't really eat a lot of meat and i kind of like if it looks like meat i have a mental i get like iffy about it but i can eat a chicken nugget because mm-hmm. i'm like this is nothing this has never <laughs> been an animal <laughs> this is just like came from a, a hose somewhere like it's it's whatever this is a fried air yeah it's uh... it's just not a product so yeah i feel fine with it <laughs> Are you aware that Taco Bell meat comes oh, out of a hose? hose? Yeah, because the first and only time I went to Taco Bell, <laughs> oh. and it was I was like 18. It was like the first time I'd ever been stoned properly. And my boyfriend at the time was like, we have to go to Taco Bell. It's what you do when you're 18 and stoned for the first time. And we went in, and I was like, sure, I'll get one Taco Bell taco. And they're like, ooh, sorry, the meat hose is clogged. And I was like, well, I am never, yes! never coming back here again. Oh, God. That's, I had a coworker when I was a reporter. The guy who sat at the desk across from me came back from lunch one day and was like, I tried to go to Taco Bell, but their meat hose was clogged. Yep. And I was Apparently just like, it happens. I'm going to th- throw up on your desk. It's like, first sir. of all, hose. Second of all, clogged with what? <laughs> just, <laughs> just a meat clog. Just a meat so blockage of the artery that it comes through. It's just horrific. So, yeah, stay woke. Taco Bell is going to sue us. I know. <laughs> Last night I saw, uh, I, have you guys been seeing all these commercials for places that are doing food delivery yes. because yeah. no one will come? And Taco well, Bell. Taco Bell. Oh. Yeah. And that does not seem like that travels well. <laughs> I, no. I have never mm-hmm. really been a, I've not, I don't think I've ever really eaten at a Taco Bell. I think I've like been around somebody eating Taco Bell and it's never really spoken to me as something that I need to eat. But I especially don't need it delivered to my house. Um, and the phrase meat hose is something I never want to hear again. Thank you. Yeah, Good euphemism I, for people you hate. Yeah. yeah what a meat hose. <laughs> um, yeah, I too have never eaten, uh, Taco Bell. Um, I have an entire like Mexican wing in my family who cook real Mexican food. Oh, so jealous. I was always like, no, I, I'm sorry. I can't eat your meat hose. Yeah. I, I can't do it. Um, not about that meat hose. And there's just too many, like, little places you can go to get a good taco or burrito or whatever. I mean, even now, just go to Moe's. For God's sakes, don't go to Taco Bell. We're better than Um, that. And you could go to Chipotle and risk, you know, E. coli, but (laughs) their burritos are structurally unsound. Like, I don't know why they haven't figured out how to wrap a burrito at Chipotle. They just fall apart the minute you try to eat them. Yes. Um... All right, thoroughly digressed. So who's the worst parent of this episode? This is like becoming an unfair question to even ask. Like, unless they're going to mix it well, up, like, maybe it should be like, who no. other than Mia was a bad parent this week? <laughs> well, I feel like that honest answer this week is Elena. And I'll make my case for it. it. So she leaves her kids, one of whom is pregnant and seeking help and needing an abortion, And she runs out of the house in the middle of the night just to go snoop on some lady and then tries to bang her old boyfriend. I think, I mean, Mia's pretty awful, but in this particular episode, she's actually good to Pearl when Pearl confesses that she had sex with Tripp. And, you know, she's not 
Lexi or Izzy's parent, so technically she's not parenting them. Yeah, but Elena doesn't know that her daughter is pregnant, even though the daughter did try to talk to her, uh, mm-hmm. and she, you know, do, she doesn't actually get to speak with her before she leaves. She should have sensed, I agree, that something was going on. But I, I don't know. I still say Mia because, like, speaking of snooping, she's, like, in her car outside watching um, the, like, Linda BB baby drama. Like, she doesn't mm-hmm. need to be there. Like, fucking go home. And Well, she dropped off. I assume she dropped off. Yeah, Evie. she could have driven away. I don't know. But why? <laughs> why? Just why? And then her, like, like being a little bitch to poor Lexi in that moment, not okay. Turning away Izzy, who she knows that she's the lifeline for right now. Like, shutting her out. I don't know. I, I still firmly say just Mia is really... She she is not she, she's gonna take a lot for her to win me back over at this point. Well, I'm gonna play a new game where I just don't count Mia. So I'm gonna make a case for Linda McCullough. I think that mm, the okay. way Linda McCullough is acting around this impressionable, not just a baby anymore, like this kid is verging on like toddlerhood and the way she's clutching to the baby and making like such an extravagant scene over something that the court has mandated and this is they're trying to work through this, you know, legally and orderly, and she's just acting you know, really unstable in a yeah, way. Yeah, she's traumatizing that Right, kid. and I'm really worried about, like, what that's doing to the kid. So I don't know. I think that Linda is actively, like, messing up a, a new baby, whereas Elena is just kind of continuing her same old shit. Fair. <laughs> messing up a new baby, always worse than messing up the old one. <laughs> yeah, that um, lost cause. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Carolyn, what are your recommendations this week? Okay, so my uh, highbrow recommendation, I guess, <laughs> is uh, so we're all like living the quarantine life, um, and there is a great cocktail book, recipe book called Free the Tipple. <laughs> um, and it's cocktails inspired by women throughout history. So, might I recommend uh, get, getting this book? making these cocktails and uh, celebrating a different awesome lady who is not Mia every night. <laughs> um, so I recommend, I recommend that. Uh, and I guess that's kind of like whole, that kind of covers both. That is sort of a highbrow and lowbrow. I'm going to just like leave it at that. Like turn this into your like celebrating women and cocktails in your shut-in state. Bam. Getting drunk while celebrating women's Yeah, history. getting drunk while getting mm-hmm. educated. I think that that's the goal. <laughs> the quarantine life goal. Rebecca, what do you have? Well, mine are both probably fitting of this episode the way it's turned out. Very sad and depressing and based on deaths that happened this week. So buckle up. <laughs> um, and they're both also, I think you could make an argument that both could be high or lowbrow, but I'm going to classify them the way my brain classifies them. So my highbrow is the great Bill Withers who passed away yesterday. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, talk about just somebody whose craft and and singing skills are just unparalleled. So if you, if you're a Bill Withers fan, pour one out. If you aren't a Bill Withers fan, run, don't walk and listen to any of his songs or the big hits, the little songs that you don't listen to so often. He's the man. Um, My lowbrow slash, you know, can be very highbrow in its references, is The Great Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which aired on The Mm. CW, and the wonderful songwriter Mm -hmm. Adam Schleschlinger of Fountains of Wayne, who passed away from the coronavirus this week. I mean, he he is just like one of the most stupidly talented people that we've been blessed with, and every song he writes is fantastic. He did songs for the Emmys, he's done uh, Broadway stuff, and the the writing for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is incredible. I would specifically recommend Getting By, um, a song that he wrote for one of the characters who realizes, I think he's probably Daryl's in his, like, I don't know, late 50s, 60s, that he's actually bisexual, and it's just a wonderful song. The other one that's great is Angry Sexy Tango is another one he wrote that's fantastic. So just if you don't know Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, now's the time to get into it. You've got nothing I was going to say, I it's will so second good. that and say, get get into, watch that. It's a great that is a great watch. I had the privilege of seeing it live at Fairfield Theater Company last January, and Adam Schlesinger and Rachel Bloom were both singing, and it was just incredible. They're super talented. So it's a big loss. 
Yeah. That's really cool. Also, uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, one of the greatest abortion storylines yes. of all time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so I'm running out of things to recommend, um, mostly because, weirdly, quarantine has me watching less TV somehow. I don't really know how this is happening. But um, I think it, the few things I am watching, I've already recommended. So I'm going back to the 90s this week. Yes. Um so in 1996, Ani DeFranco's Dilate came out, which was like life changing for me. My friend Patrick, who I will forever credit with shaping my musical taste, would make me um, mixtapes all the time. And he put Ani on it and just like nothing, nothing was ever the same. It, to be fair, it might have actually been Not a Pretty Girl that... Um, that came first for me but dilate was the album that i just loved it is angry and she is angry Ooh, i can't wait she is mad at everybody i've never listened to I've, it oh run don't walk I'm i so mean excited. if you want 90s 90s angry girl nostalgia um i and weirdly when i was looking up what year it came out i came across um an article that was like the best records of by women from whenever i don't know what it was it was an npr thing and they put um, Ani's Little Plastic Castle on there, which is a poor choice. Um, not that I don't like it, but it was definitely not her best album. So I don't know what NPR is talking about. So if you listen to that one and then never listen to anything again, go back to Not a Pretty Girl and Dilate. There's a whole song called Untouchable Face where she just says, fuck you, like over and over again. It's the best. Um, I'm so excited. That's just what I'm in the mood for. <laughs> And then for my lowbrow, um, I'm recommending Daria. Oh. The that cartoon. I mean, like if I you you were are Daria, a, Teresa. Yeah, I, I probably am. I, I probably sound as like droning and monotonous as Daria sounded. And although luckily I did not have a Quinn in my life, really. Um, <laughs> her annoying Lexi like sister, but Jane Lane was great. Like I just you know. I can't think of another cartoon like that that was so. Do you know they are on MTV at the time about to ruin Daria with a live action movie with Aubrey Plaza? No, yeah. I mean if anyone's gonna play gonna her, say, it should be Aubrey it, Plaza. She, but she doesn't she just look exactly like her too? She does, like, does but do we? Mm-hmm. The whole premise of it is is that it's a high school. It's her like high school reunion. Yeah, I feel like April oh. Ludgate is Daria. Like right. she changed her name. I yeah. I just feel like it's not. I, I think that the best parts of the movie are probably whatever you see in the trailer. You can go look up that trailer. Um, but I'm concerned about that. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to have to look that up because I have heard nothing. I forgot. I did want to endorse. Uh, we watched The Invisible Man, uh, which was supposed to be released in the theaters. And now you can watch, you know, you can rent it at home. And it is. Is this the book? No. The adaptation of the book? No. Oh. Uh, well, I mean, it takes that concept, but it's uh, that actress from Elizabeth Moss. No, it is a book. Mm-hmm. It's This is also a remake, too. It just came out. Right. It Man is, is but old... they do things with this that are not from that. I don't yeah. want to give away anything. Just go into this, regardless of knowing. Yes, we all know the premise, but they. Uh, this is really well done and deals with uh, deals with issues. And uh, is it, I, I was pleasantly surprised by it and also uh, just horrified by moments of it. And uh, it's a really good watch. And Elizabeth Moss is spectacular in it. Um, Wait, so what's it on? So you can rent it on whatever you are renting okay. movies on. Like whether you have like Xfinity or Amazon, uh, Roku, whatever. It's on several different platforms to rent. And I, I really just don't want to give away anything because mm-hmm. right from the get-go there are um but it deals with issues that sadly a lot of women are dealing with uh in their lives and uh and, and approaches it from an angle that is, so it makes it interesting go go forth and watch it it's a well-done thriller okay that is a good one and so with that we will attempt to find more to talk about with this freaking show Uh, um, next week.